Welcome to Cars Yeah, show number 486. Hey, listen, do it because you dig it. Uh, if it's not fun, it's time to be doing something else. This is Cars Yeah, where you'll enjoy interviews with inspiring automotive enthusiasts. Mark Green is here to provide you with a fuel injection of automotive inspiration. So get in, sit down, buckle up, and get ready for a wild ride here on Cars Yeah. I'll never worry again about having a dead battery with my NOCO Genius Boost Jump Starter. This compact tool fits in my glove box and features rechargeable lithium battery technology that'll jumpstart a dead battery in my car, boat, truck, or RV. The Genius Boost features built-in spark-proof technology and reverse polarity protection to safely jumpstart any of my vehicles. The compact, ergonomically designed clamps are built from solid copper for maximum conductivity. There's a built-in ultrabite dual LED flashlight with seven modes, including an SOS and emergency strobe. I use my Genius Boost Jump Starter to charge my phone, tablet, and laptop while I'm on the road or if the power goes out in my home. The unit itself is easily rechargeable in my vehicle. The Genius Boost from NOCO is the ultimate emergency tool that's safe and easy to use. Quality design, state-of-the-art technology from NOCO, the battery car source since 1914. I've got one in each of my vehicles. Get yours at GeniusChargers.com. Hello, automotive enthusiasts. I am revved up and so excited to introduce today's very special guest, Drew Alcazar. Drew, are you buckled up and ready for a fun ride? I am. I've got the five-point harness cinched down. Let's rock and roll. All right. Love it when my guests come prepared. Drew Alcazar is the owner of Phoenix-based Russo and Steel Collector Automobiles, and he's a recognized expert in the collector car market and restorations. He and his wife, Josephine, launched Russo and Steel in 2000, featuring two specialty auctions annually, one in Scottsdale and the other during Car Week in Monterey, California. They specialize in European sports cars, American muscle cars, street rods, and customs. In 2016, Russo and Steel is celebrating its 16th year of auction events and is considered one of the big three premier auctions to attend for enthusiasts and collectors alike. And I'll let our listeners know I've been to Russo and Steel auctions and it is a show, my friends. It is an amazing show. So, Drew, I've told our listeners just a little bit about you. Would you take a moment and share a little bit more about your business and, of course, your passion for automobiles? Well, I think uh, everybody probably knows me best for the Russo and Steel Collector Automobile Auction that we do. Uh, you did a great job in uh, introducing that, and uh, I'm excited to be with you here uh, uh, having the interview, Mark. I, I hope your uh, listeners enjoy uh, what we have to say here uh, during our conversation. Absolutely. I think uh, Russo and Steel, uh, for Josephine and I, was really uh, uh, just an extension of our enthusiasm. Uh, there's a number of things that make Russo and Steel pretty unique. One, of course, is that for the two of us, it really isn't a job. This is something we kind of would be doing anyway. We, we have a nice little car collection ourselves that fluctuates right around 30 cars that we have. So we're constantly participating uh, in the hobby as enthusiasts in terms of uh, road rallies that we attend. Uh, uh, we've actually even participated in the Mille Miglia in Italy. Wow. I've uh, done all the major rallies here domestically. I got bit by the vintage racing bug. Gosh, it's probably uh, eight seasons ago now. So... Uh, Sneaking up on almost 10 years of doing that. It's amazing how quickly that goes. I've got uh, a historic Trans Am car that uh, we're very excited about, a 1969 Boss 302 that we campaign uh, in HTA. 
as well as uh, several other cars that uh, we have that we run in Group 6, uh, 66 GT350 that uh, we campaigned pretty hard, was able to participate last year uh, in the Monterey uh, Motorsports Reunion, of course, with all of the GT350s in that uh, anniversary year. Oh, yeah. uh, it's, that was fantastic. I think we had, gosh, I think it was 44 GT350s uh, on the Laguna Seca racetrack at one time. Uh, it was just such a thrill. I was there. That was quite a show. Wasn't it, though? God, it was fun. Yeah. It was so much fun. Uh, yeah. So that was sort of a bucket list thing. Uh, uh, we were fortunate enough to uh, display my uh, 250 uh, GT Cabriolet uh, Ferrari at Pebble Beach in 2012. We were able to uh, check that off the bucket list after uh, almost 30 years as a lay spectator. I was uh, actually able to be, as they say, on the lawn. Wow, very uh, cool. As an exhibitor uh, in 2012, so that was lots of fun. We do a lot of different concourse shows uh, around the country, uh, enjoying the enthusiasm for our cars. So, um, again... That tagline that Russo and Steele has of for enthusiasts, by enthusiasts, was really born out of that understanding that, you know, we, we're, we're digging this anyhow. We're vintage racing, road rallying, uh, going to other auctions. I, I buy and sell probably, uh, you know, a dozen or more of my own personal collection cars throughout the year. I, I know you guys are enthusiasts, and it's very obvious, and I'm glad you shared that with our listeners because they understand now, too, exactly who uh, Drew and Josephine are. And we're going to learn a lot more about you as we venture through our questions here. But first, I want to ask you, about a success quote or a mantra that you have, some kind of saying that's been instrumental in forming your life and your success. It's a really nice way to get the inspirational tires turning here on Cars, yeah? I know you love to drive, so Drew, take the wheel. Well, I think back, uh, you know, I started my own business when I was 21. I sold a 1969 uh, Mach 1 that uh, while I was going to school, I restored. It won the Grand Nationals, MCA Grand Nationals, two years in a row. And I ended up uh, meeting a, 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 who became a very uh, close mentor of mine uh, out in California. And uh, he said uh, kind of one of those proverbial, what are you going to do with the rest of your life sort of questions. And uh, decided to sell my beloved Mach 1. Uh, interestingly enough, set a world record selling that car wow. uh, in the mid-80s to Otis Chandler. Oh, okay. Uh, was uh, amassing his muscle car collection at the time in Austin, California. Uh, took all the proceeds from that world record price. Uh, at that time, which to me was a bazillion million dollars, and uh, opened up my restoration shop in Southern California, spent every single nickel I had uh, opening up the shop. I was dedicated exclusively to ground up, uh, show winning, competitive, concord level uh, marquee restorations. We uh, we ended up doing a lot of Shelby's, a lot of Cobras, that kind of stuff I got fairly well known for. Uh, did that for 15 years. Uh, the name of the outfit was called Concord Restorations in a wonderful place called Rancho Cucamonga in California. I know it well. When I moved there, it was uh, nothing but great vineyards and uh, dirt roads uh, before the freeways went in. So it kind of grew up there, and it was a lot of fun to have my shop. But uh, my mentor at that time always had a wonderful saying. He actually had a, he had a lot of sayings, but two of them really stuck with me. Uh, one is he says, broke is a state of mind. A temporary lack of funds can always be corrected. <laughs> Uh, another one of his that uh, I've always kind of lived my life by is, and he'd say it often, it was always fun. I still see the grin on his face in my mind's eye. He'd say, swing hard, you might hit it. <laughs> yeah, swing away, swing away. Those are great quotes, especially for entrepreneurs, because the world of entrepreneurs 
And the car market and the collector car market too is a really up and down roller coaster, or it can be. Obviously, we're on a huge upswing right now. Things are on one another one of those uh, escalating times when people are just buying and buying cars. But we all know that those times change, and sometimes they they go the other direction. So it sounds like your mentor shared some good wisdom with you. I th- I like that. Now you talked about being a car guy going way way back, but it's Maybe you could share a story with me that instigated your passion for cars. Is there a pivotal moment, as you remember in your life, when you really knew that you were a car guy? Gosh, that's uh, that's a DNA type situation, at least for me. I, there, there was never any question about that. I I grew up at uh, at a working uh, dude guest ranch in Colorado that my folks have now owned for seventy years. It's about uh, five thousand acres of a working guest ranch. They they run. Uh, Several hundred head of quarter horses, uh, you know, five six hundred head of uh, uh, of beef cattle. Uh, it's actually a ranch that when people come out to do their city slickers experience, uh, it's actually them uh, working to get the job done. It's not just a facade or being done for their entertainment. Wow. It's a working ranch, and I just somehow I don't know. Maybe I got dropped off by aliens there, or what happened? <laughs> uh, a funny looking hat and pointy toed boots just wasn't uh, my cup of tea. My my horsepower came in the uh, in the in the form of, uh, of cubic inches. And uh, I was just nuts about cars from, you know, collecting Hot Wheels to building models all the way up to uh, uh, age uh, 15 and a half in Colorado. You could get a provisional driver's license. Uh, this is back in the olden days now, the Jurassic period. And um, <laughs> I, I pestered my dad since uh, about the age of 13 that I couldn't live without uh, a Mach 1. And uh, finally, after a year and a half of my uh, relentless uh, Chinese water torture on stupid Mach 1, which, of course, they had absolutely no idea what a Mustang Mach 1 was, they finally relented and uh, co-signed on a loan for me. And my very first car was a 1970 351 Cleveland four-barrel Mach 1. Oh, my gosh. Which is sort of like giving a a, a weapon of mass destruction to a teenager. Uh, Yeah. So uh, uh, six months later, I was uh, informed by my folks that the Mach 1 uh, would be being sold as a result of me never being home uh, after I acquired it, or at least not coming home until the wee hours of the morning. Uh, They said that that reign of terror was over and (laughs) grant you the keys to your great-grandfathers, who, by the way, was uh, I knew well he was still alive. Uh, They gave me my great-grandfather's 1963 four-door Ford Galaxy. Oh my gosh, <laughs> now there's a switch. <laughs> well, I still have that in my collection today. Oh, very cool, very cool. Took me to California with uh, with a couple of amplifiers and my rock and roll guitars in it to chase my uh, desire for fame and stardom. And uh, after spending a number of years uh, on the strip with uh, the likes of uh, the Guns N' Roses type hair metal bands during the mid-80s, it was time to get the real job, and uh, I opened up my restoration shop. So uh, I've been really fortunate that cars have always been part of my life. They've always been the ones that paid my bills, uh, which is great, simply because, uh, candidly, I don't know how to do anything else, <laughs> uh, or at least not very well. And uh, it, you're, you're right. You hit the nail on the head. Entrepreneurialism uh, is that rare combination of sort of tenacity uh, and insanity. Uh, the Scottsdale auction, for example, that we just got done producing, which I'm very proud uh, of the team uh, to say we enjoyed a double-digit increase over our results from last year. Congratulations. Uh, Being the only uh, major auction house in Scottsdale to uh, enjoy uh, a gain over last year's results. But that's a $2.5 million investment before the first car shows up 
and before the first person you know walks through the gate uh, to attend the show. And so it is that level of, as, as I say, insanity, whether with the trepidation that goes along with it, to where you have huge multiple million dollar investments. I tell people it's like throwing a really expensive party and you hope everybody shows up and decides to join you. <laughs> Yeah, uh, it has been very successful for the last 16 years, and uh, fortunately, uh, it's it's funny. Russo and Steele actually kind of worked. I, I still kind of scratch my own head on that, but there was a couple of very unique things about Russo and Steele. In addition to it really being the passionate pursuit of Josephine and I and our team that we have, they're all car people. Uh, everybody digs it. We've got people, gals on our administrative staff that go and work and volunteer for other car shows uh, on the weekends. Uh, my consignment director, John Bemis, uh, also vintage races uh, along with me and, and does various car shows. He owns several Ferraris and B production race cars. Um, my uh, vehicle operations director uh, races a GT350 is with us as well. So it's a band of sort of car hooligans that we do this with. But more so than that, we really wanted to make the passion and the enthusiasm at the center. Auction in the round was a unique element of Russo and Steel that we did from the very beginning because I wanted the car to be at the epicenter. So what we decided was, let's just drive the car right through the middle of the audience. Let yeah. them get close and personal with it. Touch it, see it, you know, lick it if you have to. But that sort of emotional response that you want to have because that, I think, that visceral reaction, that immersion experience is what car collecting really is genuine, at least at my heart, is all about. Um, but then when you said, well, how is it that if you're in the front row, that's great. But what happens if you're three rows behind that guy? Uh, it's difficult to see. So we did this elevated seating each year that creates this kind of gladiator sort of coliseum type theatrical kind of uh, environment that we have with all the elevated seating that goes up almost 360 degrees around the auction block. Uh, the ringmen are on the floor with me. I'm sort of kind of the ringleader, you know, stirring things up. We have our auctioneers up on these raised uh, pe pedestal platforms, looking down on the audience, taking the bid. So it's a very passionate, very interactive uh, sort of gladiator sport uh, type concept that we did for these collector cars. Uh, it has become a signature of Russo and Steel, and that's really what Russo and Steel is all about. Well, you explained it really well for those listeners who haven't had the pleasure of attending one of your events, because I've been there, I know it, and it is a very different kind of event. You know, all the different auctions that occurred during uh, the time there in Scottsdale in January and in August in Monterey, they're all a little different. They all have their own thing, but the vibe that you put on is very unique, very different, and very exciting. So I'm glad you stayed true. I would love to take a look at some of the roads you've driven down and ask you to share a big challenge or a huge failure. You alluded to, you know, this entrepreneurial journey that we're on is a challenge and it's fraught with all sorts of challenges and sometimes failures. If you could take us to that one time that was a real challenge for you, but better yet explain how you overcame it and what it taught you. Well, that one's an easy one. I think, uh, you know, certainly the headlines uh, that were made in 2010 when we uh, encountered our adversity uh, with the, the tents in that real adverse weather that we had uh, coming down on our auction site in Scottsdale. That was a challenge that I hope to never, ever repeat again. And, and truthfully, there isn't a successful entrepreneur on the planet that'll tell you that they have not faced some type of, I don't necessarily want to say catastrophic adversity, but certainly some level of adversity that has always tested their mettle. And I think the vast majority of those people will tell you that once they were able to weather that storm and they were tempered by that challenge, uh, that as they come out stronger on the other end is something that they probably say, gee, I never want to repeat that again. <laughs> but 
it's uh, now that we made it through to the other side. You know, there was a lot of silver lines that cloud, and I, I I hate dredging up 2010 again because it was, you know, that's six years ago now. A lot of that's behind us, and 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 I don't need to reopen a, a lot of those wounds. But you know, we had two 840 foot long tents full of almost 800 cars. And when you put that in perspective, that's four football. Wow. That on our opening night on Thursday, we had some adverse weather come through the Phoenix, uh, the Scottsdale Valley, and we lost both of the display tents on yeah. site. Oh, my gosh. Tent had to evacuate the site. You know, we were very, very fortunate. Uh, let, let, let me tell you, I, Mark, we had no fatalities. We had no injuries. Now, I can tell you that my demeanor would have radically been different had I had one of my friends or family injured, dismembered, uh, visiting them in the hospital or the morgue would have dramatically changed the tact on which it was that we are on there. But, you know, you, you kind of got up the next morning and, and as horrific as that experience was, it was, I can assure you, it was like Katrina and Apocalypse Now all in one place. Oh, geez. And candidly, you know, you were making it up as you went along. This was something that no one had ever been there before. Uh, you know, people were always going, well, you know, I, I trust you have insurance for this. And you, and you go, what? Are you nuts? How could you possibly have predicted this? You know, I, I have insurance if people, you know, somebody trips and falls and skins their knee. I have insurance if, uh, you know, the, the generator stops running or the lights go out. You know, you don't have insurance for these type of, of completely unpredictable catastrophic events that occur. So the losses of that that year were something that even to this day, we're still working as a company to overcome. I, I, I can be candid. Uh, it's, it's a matter of public record, of course, because of the, uh, you know, the litigation that we survived. And, and, and fortunately, we were able to prevail. Uh, we, we were the prevailing party uh, on that litigation, but our, our losses were in excess of five and a half million dollars. Oh, ouch. Oh my gosh. So to put that in sort of a monetary perspective, not that I'm, you know, relishing the thought of, of, uh, you know, still recuperating from that, but that type of adversity, when you face it, there was a lot of silver linings to that cloud. I think, uh, first of all, the only way that we survived that was through the support of a tremendous number of, of friends and family and people that banded together with us. You really able, you were able to see, interestingly enough, that was our 10th anniversary. We'd done a tremendous number of special things for our 10th anniversary. We had a, a huge gala the night before that we'd, everybody would worked their tails off, you know, pumping six inches of water off the dance floor to try and get prepared the, for the gala the next night. It was, you know, the whole thing was incredibly challenging that year, but it was our anniversary year. And you realize the dividends that got paid of all of the relationships that we made and that we'd forged and the people that were loyal to us. You know, we had people, interestingly enough, I should say this, uh, in 2010, the tents um, went down on Thursday night at 7-ish, 6.37, and we started the auction in the afternoon at about 1, so we'd only had probably five or six hours of auction, but we were slated to go all the way through Sunday, as we always do in Scottsdale. So we ended up losing two days, and lo and behold, I mean, you could have probably pushed me over with a feather, there were so much rabid loyalty of our client base that we were able to put together two days of auctions after the disaster. We were open once again in auctioning on Sunday, and then people stayed through to auction on Monday as well. And it was astounding to me, and I still to this day, the, the folks that did this are sort of like my charter members. They, they've got the get out of jail free card till the end of time that, that were there supporting us 
people that were buying cars, people that were selling cars for no other reason than it was us. It was Russo and Steele and it was Jew and Josephine and damn the torpedoes. And I think that kind of encapsulated why it is so poignantly that the collector car hobby, and let's face it, it really is a hobby. Granted, I'm in an auction business, and so I got to turn it into a bit of a quasi-industry. And I always hate people when people use that word, but it's really a hobby. And you see the heartfelt passions that come through in this, in the people that are associated. Let's face it, cars are just cars. They're hunks of metal with four pieces of rubber holding them up off the ground, which, you know, for all the couple hundred cars that got damaged in January, you say, look, you know, we restored them once. We can restore them again. You know, I get it. The, the fender's got a dent in it. That's horrific. Maybe the, you know, the windshield got hit by a, a tent pole. Hey, you know, listen, we, we fixed them once. We'll fix them again. We'll figure all this out. We'll get this taken care of. But the rabid loyalty of the, of the human part of that, the, the, the devotion of those clients that came back on board, helped us get through it, stuck with us the years after when we were, you know, fighting for our very lives in 2011, 12, and even into 13. Uh, you know, people were still questioning whether or not Russo and Steele had the capability of surviving. And I think a lot of the people that went through that experience with us and stood by us, and even maybe those people that were just sort of lay kind of on the fence spectators, I think the resounding theme and element from that disaster was, hey, if those guys at Russo and Steele can take that kind of a hit and still stay standing like Rocky Balboa, just still keep moving forward take the hits and keep slugging and stay on their feet no matter how beat up they may be, but keep swinging back and they just don't go down. That, I think, really solidified our position uh, in the hobby. Well, wow. What a story. Oh, my gosh. Well, we got the inside track on what was a very public uh, affair. Of course, uh, not a lot you can do when Mother Nature decides to rain down, excuse the pun, on your head. Uh, the way it did for uh, you and a lot of other folks that uh, that terrible day. But uh, so glad that uh, you guys powered through and came through. What a great story. Love that. Thanks for sharing that. Let's shift gears here and go to the other end of the spectrum. I'd love for you to share what I like to call a career aha moment. It's a time when those headlights come on and illuminate your way for a new direction or a new idea that you had in your career. And tell us the steps you took to turn that aha moment into a success. Gosh, I'm trying to think, uh, you know, one that comes to mind that still makes me laugh to this day. Here's Russo and Steele, and we've been doing our thing and whatnot. And, and it's always been sort of this perspective that Josephine and I have that uh, uh, it, it's easy to sort of be the CEO because I just go look in the mirror. I say, hey, what would you like to do? What's the event that you'd like to go to? What kind of cars do you enjoy? What do you, you know, what gets your motor running? And, and I look in the mirror and I go, this is what I want to do. I guess it's a little narcissistic, to be honest with you. I don't want to say necessarily egotistical that Russo and Steele is very much like my home. Uh, you know, it's like inviting people to my home. I, I parked my Boss 429 in, the, in my living room at my house. <laughs> cool. Just hope that guests don't use it for a coaster when they stop. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, don't sit on the fender. So the, 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 the auction for us is very similar, uh, Mark, in that it's in, like inviting people to our home. And we see it very much that way. And so I think sometimes we're a little ethnocentric. We sort of see things from our own little perspective on, on how we do things and whatnot. The moment that you're asking me for was kind of funny. It was probably, I don't know, five or six years ago, something like that now. And it made me chuckle because someone had counterfeited one of our complimentary bitters drink tickets. <laughs> so 
that they could go to the bitters bar and get a free drink. <laughs> wow. <laughs> it kind of made me laugh. It was the ultimate compliment that, that someone is actually counterfeiting one of your drink tickets. Yeah, yeah. Your event and, and drink at the bar. And, and that, I guess, kind of made me, it was like this uh, sort of a bit of an epiphany. Oh, my gosh, we, may, we maybe really kind of have arrived a moment. <laughs> yeah, when somebody <laughs> wants to get in so place. bad. Yeah, that they'll spend all that time uh, to counterfeit something. That's pretty funny. That's pretty was, funny. And it was well done counterfeit. It wasn't um, <laughs> I, Maybe that's a little bit uh, tongue-in-cheek, maybe not quite the, uh, the the oh, wow moment that maybe you're looking for, but that uh, that was one of those times that you kind of go, wow, you've kind of arrived. It feels like. <laughs> that's a fun one. I like that. How about proudest career moments? I would assume you've had many. You touched on some of those proud moments of how your friends and customers and staff stayed with you and, and fought with you during that difficult time back in 2010. But is there a, a moment, one proudest moment that really stands out for you? You know, there is one, and, and people always kind of associate it with a car that got sold. And, and, and all cars that sell are special to me. I, I, I always enjoy the glint in someone's eye when it's their very first time on an auction block. The adrenaline's pumping and the anxieties at a, at, a, at a peak level and, you know, the excitement that's there. And, of course, the environment that we have on our auction block is sort of a controlled controlled chaos type of environment. Sure, yeah. We had a, 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 a one of the original uh, factory uh, team race cobras. And this is going Ooh. back to, gosh, 06, 07, I think, right in there, maybe 05 even. I should remember that year better, so forgive me. Uh, <laughs> it's okay. But we had this uh, competition factory uh, Shelby American uh, team car. Uh, I can't remember the CSX number. Got what was it? Twenty one something something. Anyway, and and it was really really fun. The the the, the consigner called me uh, ahead of the auction and said, you know, look, I want to sell the car. And I said, well, you know, what what's your expectation in the marketplace? And he said, well, you know, I'd like to get about seven seventy five for the car. And this is when a, a standard street Cobra was selling for probably two and a quarter-ish kind of range. Wow, okay. So, you know, this was a, a pretty stout premium for a car with some great history. Alan Grant, one of the factory uh, championship drivers, uh, was at the auction that night. Uh, it was so much fun. And uh, Bob Bodrot was in attendance also that evening. So we had a lot of fun with the Shelby American team uh, drivers that were there supporting the car uh, for the consigner. There was a period of time that the consigner had some trepidation about the auction. And he said, you know, I really, I'm not really into that sort of uh, overt, uh, public uh, sort of thing. It's not really my cup of tea. I'd, I'd really just prefer to sell the car privately. And, of course, as a Cobra guy myself, I'm, you know, now starting to salivate going, oh, really? <laughs> yeah, well, let's talk. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I had to resist that temptation uh, to say, hey, no problem, let me let me grab my checkbook. I'd love to be uh, the next uh, caretaker for, uh, I think it was 2128. I, I said, look, you know, if, if I buy the car from you, no matter if I own it for 100 years and I pay you 775 and then I turn around and sell it for 850, you know, there's always going to be that, well, you know, did you begrudge me my profit or whatever the case may be? And, and then it becomes that, that challenge that I have is I have my auctioneer hat on versus just my lay enthusiast, hey, you know, I'm a car geek kind of hat on. And the liability that you're staring down to have that kind of adverse reaction uh, if you decide to kind of jump in the middle and play that game. And so I stood down and I said, look, um, let's bring the car to auction. 
let's try and maximize your market potential for the car. And, you know, if it's a situation that we swing as hard as we know how and we put our shoulder into it and we don't get the car sold, you know, maybe we can have a conversation thereafter about, uh, you know, another alternative of, of getting the car sold privately. But at least for right now, you know, let me do what it is that we do, which is the auction. Let me put my, my marketing uh, machine behind this. It, it became our star car for that year. Of course, it was on the cover of the catalog. We beat the drum from, you know, here to uh, uh, Never Never Land on that particular car. Anyway, let's get to the exciting chasing part. <laughs> car sold for $2.75 million. Oh, my gosh. Wow. You have the two best guys in the room, huh? <laughs> and so, you know, when you can end up breaking the $2 million barrier on that, uh, that was a really, really fun moment to see, you know, and, and the thing is, is as much as I'd love to replicate that for every single one of my consigners, uh, trust, trust me, yeah. every single car that's on the auction block, I'd love nothing better than to, you know, launch into the stratosphere like that. Uh, they're wonderful moments when they happen. We spend a tremendous amount of time, uh, you know, waving the flag and beating the drum when those wonderful sort of market anomalies take place. And, and the market, I think, has, has gotten a lot more sophisticated, a lot more savvy. I don't think you have as much uh, disparity in the marketplace maybe as we used to. You, you see the estimates that auction houses are putting on cars now. Uh, of course, the Internet uh, took a lot of the guesswork about a lot of the valuations of cars. So the, the market's a lot more narrow in terms of its valuations to have someone go, well, you know, my expectations a half a million and, you know, the auction house turns around and sells it for three times that. I, I don't think that that happens probably that often anymore. But I can tell you that at least that one time uh, for that one competition, Cobra, way, way back when, uh, and that was kind of a launching pad for Russo and Steel. That was the very first multi-million dollar car that we sold. So I'm sure it's a it's a special time for me uh, to talk about that car, too. And uh, there was a couple of guys that I can give a shout out to. Uh, I'll just call them by first name because they know who they are. Uh, but both Dave and uh, Jim uh, were very instrumental in that, and I couldn't have done it without them. So uh, they'll, they'll always live in my memory for uh, helping Russo and Steel have that moment. Very cool. I love it. Well, let's have a little bit more fun here. We're having a blast. What was your first really special car? I know you have a collection of your own cars, but what was that first car that you finally got that you just went, wow, I finally have this? Wow, that sort of never, that never ends. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think it was, uh, it was the ultimate incarnation of my enthusiasm that started with, uh, as I said, at 15 and a half, having the, the, the Mach 1. Yeah, uh, I was always just a giga nutcase over over the Mach One. For some reason or another, that resonated with me. If it was the the long hood or the swooping uh, uh, quarter panel uh, sail panel lined, the little sort of ducktail spoiler in the back, or the graphics, or or certainly you know the large cubic inch engines, and you know if you look to the top of the heap in that sort of uh, sector, you know, a Boss Four Twenty Nine is kind of your holy grail. Well, let's go down that other road, that seller's remorse road. Now, you've bought and sold tons of cars, but there's got to be one that you let go that you really wish you had back in your living room or your garage. And I don't want you to say it because it's worth a bunch of money now. This is a sentimental deal, okay? Money's off the table. Just that car you let go that you really wish you had back. Well, interestingly enough, I've sold that car twice and, and got it back twice. Two, two sellers for more stories. I, I've sold it twice, and I've got it back three times, and I ain't selling it again. Smart. Uh, I, I've got the very last car that I restored at my restoration shop. Um, 
you know, I, I've, I've always restored a ton of 65 GT350s. I tell people that there's, there's really only two kinds of GT350 owners, those that own a GT350 and those that wish they owned a GT350. Uh, those are the only two kinds of people there are on the planet. And every time I restore one, I keep saying, well, there's no way I'll ever sell this one. You know, I'm going to keep this one. I ended up restoring a car. It was, it was a late-numbered car. It wasn't anything special. It wasn't a two-digit car or a battery trunk-mounted car or great history car or, you know, a race campaign car. This is just a street front battery engine car that I bought and restored. It, it uh, had been here in Phoenix its whole life like a dummy about two years ago, maybe three now. You know, I had a guy come in and he just gave me the blink test. You know, he just stacked it up until I blinked. I don't know as if I need to have that exact GT350 back, <laughs> but I, you know, I keep uh, I keep buying other GT350s, trying to scratch that same itch again. And uh, so maybe I do need to call him up and say, "Hey, what uh, what does it take to uh, get that back in my in my uh, in my in my garage now?" Yeah, there you go. Great story. I love that one too. Well, let's talk a little bit about the current year here and what's happening with Russo and Steel. Anything new? You guys are or bringing down the pike for us uh, enthusiasts or anything that really has you excited and fired up for this year? Well, I think uh, probably the biggest exciting news that my desk is uh, is stacked neck deep with right now, trying to find a spot where I can actually write down a sticky note, uh, is that we're looking at uh, getting uh, three new venues uh, put together here in the next uh, 12 to, I'd, I'd say, arguably 15, 16 months. You know, currently, we have, of course, Scottsdale, which is our flagship in January. We do 800 cars, round numbers, over four days. Monterey will always be a signature event for us, simply because during Monterey Car Week, uh, it's special. Um, so we have those two, and then, of course, we introduced uh, Newport Beach. Uh, this will be our fifth year in Newport Beach coming up. Uh, Newport, for us, is, is kind of more of a local uh, type of uh, an auction. It really stems from the fact that Josephine and I have our home there in Newport Beach, uh, my consignment director has a home there in Newport Beach, and so it made all the sense in the world uh, for us to uh, enjoy the camaraderie of the Orange County uh, collector car enthusiasm by having an event there. Um, so that's a very uh, kind of a close-knit uh, uh, friends and family type auction. Uh, but if you look at those three geographic locations, Scottsdale, Monterey, and Newport Beach, you know, they're all sort of west-southwest based, and so we're looking at uh, sort of broadening the, the reach of Russo and Steel, introducing uh, some new geographic uh, areas uh, uh, to the Russo and Steel experience. Uh, up in the uh, back east, uh, probably in the northeast, we're looking at a couple of different venues. Uh, down south uh, in the southeast, we're looking at a couple of venues, and then also some things in, in sort of mid-America, as I call it, uh, in the Bible belts, if you will. Uh, that we're trying to look at a couple of different venues. And I don't want to jinx anything by uh, giving too many uh, cats out of the bag too early, but uh, we will be adding those new three venues. And that'll put us at six, which uh, for us, uh, you know, sort of if you look at a, at a calendar, you look at a clock, you know, if you've got six events that you can strategically place throughout the year, I think it gives, it still gives your event a level of exclusivity. Very nice. I love it. I love it. Now, here's a very introspective question for you. If you were a car, Drew, what kind of car would you be and why? You know, um, I think to answer your question, um, probably either a, a Viper GTS or a Shelby 65 GT350 in that I don't think by and large I have to have the glitz and glamour of a 
599 uh, GTB Ferrari. I, I'm not. I don't. I don't think I'm probably that. I don't want to say ostentatious or high maintenance. It's just kind of not my style. I, I kind of like doing my own kind of my own thing my way. Um, I think by and large, my focus very similar to the GT350. It was it was designed and built to do one thing. It was designed essentially to. Uh, you know, to homologate uh, the, the two-seat uh, GT350 for B production SCCA race. Uh, that's what it was built for. All right, Drew, up next is the last lap. But before we put the pedal to the metal, let's say thank you to today's Cars Yeah sponsors. If you own collector cars and still have a little bit of money left over, congratulations. You're ahead of most people. But what should you do with the money you don't spend on cars? Talk to Chris Kimball, Certified Financial Planner Practitioner. For over 20 years, he's been helping people just like you and me with their financial planning and investments. And he's a car guy, too. Call 253-722-PLAN. Or you can view his website at www.chrisvkimble.com. Make sure your investments are running on all eight cylinders, or 12, or 16. Securities through Money Concepts Capital Corp. Member, Finra Sipic. Okay, Drew, we're back and we're entering the last lap, and this is where I'm going to fire off a series of questions and ask you to give our listeners some very quick blips of the throttle answers. So you ready? Kind of like a Rorschach boss. Uh, give me your first thought that enters your head. Okay. Hey, so- there you go. That's a good way to think of it. What's the best automotive advice you've ever received? Um, always buy the best car you can afford. Perfect. Love it. Would you share one of your personal habits that you believe has helped contribute to your success over the years? Uh, If you want to do better, work harder. (laughs) I like that one, too. Do you have a resource that you think our listeners would really enjoy that you enjoy? Now, this could be a website. It could be an app you get. It could be a blog. You know, I got to tell you, I I think the, the magazine that I come to find makes it into my briefcase when I'm getting on a plane that actually goes on several flights with me is... It's probably Sports Car Market. Yeah, Keith's Magazine. He's been a guest here on Cars, yeah? Keith Martin, I think, uh, has, has done a great job of, uh, of really finding that. And it's very sports car oriented. You know, I mean, hey, if you're a, if you're a Boss 429, uh, you know, Copo Camaro, Z, uh, Z28, ZL1, uh, LE88 kind of guy, it's probably not your cup of tea. But uh, for those of us that are, uh, you know, Lamborghini, Ferrari, Aston Martin, Maserati type uh, European sports car enthusiast. That's probably my go-to resource. Yeah, absolutely. And I believe he does have an American collector car magazine as well. So maybe that might fit with those other models you talked about. He's got a whole team up there now working real hard to sort of replicate uh, his success with the uh, sports car market in uh, in a book that I guess they call American Car Collector. Yep, there you go. Uh, uh, you know, Hemmings, I think, continues to be sort of the Bible of the hobby, which is their tagline. But I, I think that's probably true. Uh, just in terms of a lot of information in one place. Absolutely. Now, how about a book? Is there a book you've read recently you think the Cars Yeah listeners should read as well? You know, I read Sammy Hagar's Red the other day. Oh, okay. Quick read. It's, it, it, it probably took me a couple hours to blow through it, but it was a lot of fun. You know, Sammy's a, you know, he's kind of a hometown guy for us that, that grew up in the Inland Empire, you know, being from Fontana as he was. But uh, he's a genuine dyed-in-the-wool car guy who is, is genuinely, uh, uh, you know, he's a rock star, but he's, he's, he's a real-world kind of guy. And I found that read to, read to be a lot of fun. So Sammy Hagar's Red was pretty cool. Very cool. First time that book's been recommended. I'll remind our listeners you can find all these great resources 
at carsyad.com slash Drew Alcazar. And Drew's last name is A-L-C-A-Z-A-R. There's also a great place on the Cars Yeah website called Guest Recommended Books for this book. And all the past 485 guest books will be listed for quick, easy links so you can buy those. But uh, we'll make sure that gets up on your show notes page. All right, Drew, this last question, it's the checkered flag. And it can be a real doozy, especially for a guy like you. If you could have only one collector car, I'm sorry, buddy, I said just one collector car in your living room, in your case. Uh, you can't buy you can't buy the most expensive and then sell it to buy a bunch of other cars with. So you know Josephine's got you tagged on that one. We know what you're thinking, but money's no object today. I will buy you whatever you want. I'm going to raise my bidder's number as high as possible to buy you the car you want. What would that one car be and why? You know that's a quick, easy answer for me. I don't have to think about it very long. Uh, I, I would get uh, one of the World Championship Cobra Daytona Coupes, one of the original cars of the six. Ah, one of Peter's cars. Okay, great. Yeah, Peter's been uh, Peter Brock's been a guest here on Cars. Yeah, and I've sat with him down at his home in Henderson and uh, listened to stories about the design of that car. What is it about the Daytona Coupe that you love so much? Well, I was fortunate enough actually to be the caretaker uh, of the Super Coupe. Who uh, the big block uh, Type sixty five prototype that uh, uh, Pete Brock uh, built uh, following the uh, Daytona Coupes. Uh, some people refer to it as the seventh Daytona Coupe. Uh, and I, I still sort of lament my decision uh, to turn loose of that car. That, that would have been a nice one. But the, the collection that it went to many years ago uh, still has it in their collection. So that's, that sort of does my heart good that it's got a great home. Uh, but I think the, 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 the Shelby American Daytona Coupes, at, at least for me, epitomize not only sort of always been at the center of the bullseye of my target of my enthusiasm for Shelby American, I, I think simply because it was just such the epitome of that Americana, that can-do entrepreneurialism against all odds, you know, a bunch of Yankee hot rodders holed up in Southern California, uh, you know, Carol Shelby, as much of a wonderful mercenary as he was, always had that uh, enviable talent of surrounding himself uh, with some 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 wonderfully uh, astute and talented people, um, they, uh, of course you've mentioned uh, all of the team drivers that we've talked about here. Uh, Pete Brock that you mentioned, of course, before, uh, but on and on and on. Phil Remington. I mean, you could keep going on down the litany of, of the folks that do this, but uh, they really, really epitomized, I think, America. I, that red, white, and blue. Hey, we can figure out a way to overcome this. We're going to conquer the world with a with, uh, you know, some bailing wire and a pair of pliers. Yep. <laughs> uh, grab your overalls, let's get our hands dirty, and let's go to battle. And for them to take uh, the, the Cobra and turn it into a world championship car, I mean, world championship endurance racing uh, in the 60s, I, I think, I, for, for those of us that are hardcore enthusiasts, I think we get it, but a lot of the lay people don't understand the significance of that. I mean, it was, it was F1 and then some you to be able to do that. So for Shelby Americans who have done what they did with the Cobras and then go into that with the Daytona Coupes and, and to have uh, these tenacious drivers and engineers uh, that helped them uh, it literally conquer the world and beat the likes of uh, the Enzo Ferrari uh, empire and regime uh, on down the line, to me has always been impressive. Uh, more so than I, I think, mostly because the only other time it ever got done was when Henry Ford just decided to throw, you know, cubic bazillions 
at uh, the Ford GT40 program. And, and, you know, you're just not going to fight cubic dollars at some point in time, whereas the Shelby American guys did it uh, with nothing but a lot of heart, soul on a shoestring budget with a huge amount of innovation. So I think for me, the Cobra Daytona Coupe encompasses all of that. I was walking down one of the lanes at SEMA, and I've done SEMA for almost 30 years now at the SEMA show, and this has to be 20, 20 some odd, maybe even long, 25 years ago. I'm walking down the aisle, and walking the other direction is Bob Ondra. And he's paying attention to something else, but I see him coming. And he, and he wasn't with anybody. It was just him. He was walking all by himself. And he almost bumped into me. And he kind of looks up with this surprised look on his face, kind of a combination of, I'm surprised, and why are you in my way? <laughs> and I just reached out my hand, and I says, Mr. Bondurant, I just want to thank you for bringing the world championship to the United States of America. And I shook his hand, and that's all I said. And all of a sudden, his face turned from this kind of a sort of annoyed, why are you in my way look, to this huge grin that lit up the entire convention hall that SEMA was in. And it caught him so by surprise that he just said, wow, thank you. And both of us then just kept walking on our ways. And it was one of those tiny little moments in the wonderful enthusiasm of collector cars that uh, always sticks in my mind. Well, Drew, you have taken me on an awesome, awesome ride today. I knew you would. And I've so enjoyed your stories. I know the listeners have as well. And I want to thank you for sharing your incredible journey with the Cars Yacht listeners and with me. Could you give us one parting piece of guidance before you drive off in the sunset in that Daytona coupe? <laughs> hey, listen, do it because you dig it. Uh, if it's not fun, it's time to be doing something else. Absolutely. Great advice from the man who knows. And what's the best way for our listeners to learn more about you and your business? Hey, I'm happy to get my shameless plug in there. Absolutely. Uh, you can keep up with us uh, at RussoAndSteel.com. It's all spelled out just like our logo. Uh, so you can keep up on the next events that we've got coming up. But uh, more so than that, uh, you know, hey, uh, flag me down at the next event that we're at, whether it's at a vintage race or a Concrete Elegance show or, or at a rally or at another auction that I'm at uh, hanging out. And uh, come on up and say hi. I, I, I enjoy that uh, more so than anything else is uh, just uh, meeting people that are, are part of this great hobby and hearing their great stories. That's what makes it fun. Absolutely. And when you do walk up to Drew, tell him you heard him on Cars Yeah with Mark Green. We had a great time. Listeners, again, you can find links to everything Drew's been so kind to share here today on his very own show notes page at carsyeah.com slash Drew. Drew, thanks again for being so generous today with your time and your expertise and for sharing your experiences with me and the listeners. Until we talk again, I'll see you down the road. Absolute pleasure, Mark. Looking forward to the next time. Take care now. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining us on today's ride here at Cars Yeah. Drive on over to CarsYeah.com to find show notes and inspiring automotive fun. Download your free copy of Filler Up, a fun book filled with gorgeous photographs of fuel filler fun, including quotes from more inspiring automotive enthusiasts. Download your copy today, and we'll see you next time on Cars Yeah.